Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Rosalind had her own vision of what she wanted out of the project. She knew that piercing a single uranium atom could create more than three million times the energy of fossil fuel. If harnessed, channeled, it could be put to constructive use, heating cities and running machines in a clean, endlessly available way. But when she shared the idea with Weaver, he smirked. Duchess, the Nazis are working on an atomic weapon. Right this minute in their little lairs, twirling their mustaches. No one's thinking about anything but the war right now. We're dedicated to self-defense, pure and simple. This is G.P. Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series and host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today I'm talking to Jenny Fields, author of Atomic Love, about a female physicist who works on the atomic bomb with the Manhattan Project. She's no longer a working scientist and now stands behind a jewelry counter at Marshall Fields. She's still devastated at the death and destruction caused by the bombs dropped in 1945 and brokenhearted ever since being dumped by the man she loved. Now, the FBI is giving her a chance to redeem herself by helping to apprehend a spy who might be selling research to the Russians. And the spy just might be the man who broke her heart. Hi, Jenny. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Galit. This should be fun. So you dedicated your novel and named its protagonist after your beloved aunt. Would Aunt Rosalind love your version? Of Rosalind. Oh, I think she would. Um, she was a very different person than the Rosalind I wrote about, although she was an interesting person because, as a matter of fact, she was a deputy marshal for Cook County. And she, she even accompanied Al Capone once, who, who she told me uh, actually was quite a gentleman. And I was ex- astonished by that. Good to know. But well, she's a tough lady like Rosalind right. Porter. You also base Rosalind on the life of Leona Woods, a physicist who actually worked on the Manhattan Project. Can you tell us a little more about her? Leona Woods was the only woman uh, in the portion of the project that was at the University of Chicago where they were creating the first nuclear reaction. She was not only the only woman, she was the youngest member of the team, an incredibly accomplished woman and uh, a mentee of Enrico Fermi. He, she was his student, and he brought her right into the project. So she was really an extraordinary person. My Rosalind is very different in, in her life than, than Leona Woods was. Leona Woods actually uh, continued as a, a physicist uh, all her life. Um, she married colleagues twice, two different colleagues. She was pregnant during the time she was working with radioactive materials. And very differently from my character, she uh, really believed the atomic bomb should have been dropped. 
And um, my Rosalind, my character, does not believe that the atomic bomb should have been dropped like many other scientists on the Manhattan Project. Um, you may not know this, but 71 or 70 people signed the uh, Zillard petition begging Harry Truman not to drop the bomb. Hmm. What about the Manhattan Project most interested you? And can you briefly describe it for anyone who doesn't remember the history? So um, they had gotten word in the U.S. government that the Germans were creating an atomic bomb, which they thought would be fearsome. And they felt they really needed to counter that by creating their own. They didn't have a lot of time. They were well into the war at this point. And so um, they gathered the greatest scientists who were available, many of them immigrants actually, to work on the project and try and get a bomb built in time to counter the Germans. Um, actually, when the Germans, uh, by the time they finished it, the Germans had, uh, I'll start that again. By the time that they finished the bomb and they were ready to use it, the Germans had surrendered. And so uh, they used it on the Japanese, sadly. Um, so it was really an extraordinary project. It, they you know, built entire towns to create the atom bomb in no time flat. Looking back, people can hardly believe it happened. And how long were they in Chicago? Well, uh, a, a group of them stayed in Chicago for quite a long time doing a lot of different work. They went on to work on the, uh, the newer hydrogen bomb, for instance. But, uh, you know, and Fermi actually always considered Chicago his home base, although he also went to Los Alamos. Mm -hmm. Rosalind, your character was fired from the project in the story not long after the bombs were dropped. Her story is a little different, but can you address what happened to most of the women who held jobs during World War II and after what happened after? This was something I really, really wanted to write about. My mother was a scientist during World War II. She did really important cancer research at the University of Chicago. And um, I never knew how important it was. She told me it was important, but you know, you think the things your parents tell you are apocryphal. And I found out right before this book came out that her paper was important enough to be referenced for years, for decades after she wrote it. And yet the minute she got married, she was expected to give up her job. The GIs came back and they needed jobs. And the idea was women should not be holding these jobs. They should be having children. And so, um, you know, my character, Rosalind, loses her job. But, you know, there are other characters in the book as well who, uh, you know, who didn't feel they had a place to work after the GIs came back. And this was a real sadness that, you know, underlied a lot of what happened. You know, we, we often think of everybody uh, smiling in the 1950s, you know, in their gray flannel suits and lovely cars and their 2.5 children. But in fact, the women, a lot of them were, were super unhappy. And a lot of the men had PTSD from the war. They wanted to be happy after the war. But there was a there was was a lot of scarring left over from that time period. Not just for the women, for people of other colors, 
for lots of people who weren't treated right after the war ended. We know that. But, now. Yes. So, now, so now in your story, it's 1950, and Rosalind works at the antique counter in the old Marshall Fields. As I said, I know that counter well. Can I remember it well. Can you talk a little bit about what Marshall Fields meant to those of us who are Chicagoans? You know, I mean, I, I hear the name Marshall Fields and I just get a smile on my face as a child. My mother would bring me down to the toy department at Marshall Fields, which was the best toy department in the world. The dolls there, just, I want to cry thinking about it. Marshall Fields was a wonderland, I think, for Chicagoans. And it broke our hearts when Macy's thought they should change the name. What is wrong with them? I mean, Marshall Fields is iconic for every Chicagoan. Yeah. It really, it really is. So Rosalind lives on Lakeshore Drive, um, as you said, by East Banks, is what you're imagining. How could she afford an apartment on, it's, it's Michigan Avenue already, on her salary as an employee of Marshall Fields? Well, they did have smaller apartments in those buildings. And, um, you know, she had made a lot of money when she was a scientist. She was, you know, among the elite and she was making more money. She felt special. She was making a man's salary. So I imagine she put some money away, but now that she's lost her job, it's, you know, it's four years later and she's, she's living in this apartment. She's barely making ends meet. So she's, you know, buying thing, you know, all her food on sale or the bruised bin in the, you know, of the fruit counter. And she's, you know, she's barely, barely making ends meet when the book begins and, and living a very kind of grayed out life. She doesn't have much in her life except her sister and brother-in-law and her niece. And she's, she's really lost her place in the world and she's feeling like a lost soul. Mm-hmm. And then she gets a call from the man who broke her heart. Right. He not only broke her heart, he he betrayed her. She believed Mm -hmm. that he was the one that made her lose her job. Uh, So why does Rosalind, this is still during the war, why did she let herself get involved with him in those years without a ring on her finger? Well, you know, I think Rosalind is a a free thinker in a lot of ways, you know, she's different than other people. And, you know, and let's, let's be honest. Um, you know, we think that everybody got engaged and then they went to bed together in those days, but the truth is that's not true at all. I mean, there were a lot of shotgun weddings going on back then too. And, you know, she, she, she knows that he's kind of a person who is hard to catch he seems to her, because she has very little experience with men at the point she meets him, having been the smart girl, the girl with the glasses who no one asks out, you know, in her mind, even though she was quite beautiful, you know, she always said that, um, you know, her braininess blunted her appeal to men. So here is a man who really wanted her for her braininess and her beauty. And he seemed uh, elegant and he seemed charming and she could hardly believe her good luck and he seemed very loving to her so she went on and had an affair with him and then when he dropped her she was just she had no experience in this she was shocked and hurt 
and and stunned and depressed. Seriously depressed. And now, um, now she gets a couple calls. She's not going to talk to him. And suddenly, so she's already aggravated. And suddenly she realizes that someone's following her. What can you tell us about that? So she sees this man on Michigan Avenue. Actually, he's he's standing by Marshall Fields when she comes out and she follows. He follows her down Michigan Avenue. That's the first time she really notices him. And he's six foot seven. He's not the type of person who can easily follow you without being seen. And she notes that, you know, he, he seems graceful. He seems energetic, but he's holding his hand against his ribs like a woman holding a handbag. And, you know, he, she wonders what's going on there. And she realizes maybe he had some kind of war injury. And she wonders, is he, you know, following her because she's pretty? And she so desperately wants such a thing to happen. And at the same time, she's a little freaked out because this guy is clearly trying to keep up with her as she goes down Michigan Avenue. And then she starts to see him everywhere. She starts to see him on the bus. She starts to see him at a restaurant when she's there with her brother and uh, with her sister and brother-in-law and niece. And, and then she sees him when she comes out of a dentist appointment in the middle of the day, and she just knows that he's following her. So, uh, and then she learns that he is investigating something. Is it fair for him to drag Rosalind into his investigation? Well, I think at that point, there was so much fear about the atomic bomb and the fact that in 1949, so this is 1950 in Chicago, in 1949, the atomic bomb was was tested by the Russians successfully. Nobody imagined that the Russians could come up with an atomic bomb so fast. Clearly, someone was sharing secrets with the Russians. And this became, uh, you know, a cause celeb for, you know, the FBI because they really needed to find out who's spilling the secrets, who in the, who of these scientists is sharing secrets with the Russians. Um, and so, um, you know, yes, it's inconvenient for Rosalind to have to go see her old lover who betrayed her, but it's also she could be helping to save her nation to save the world, in fact, if they could find out who's selling these secrets. And uh, he, Charlie, is getting a lot of pressure because this is during the Senator McCarthy era. Right. Can you bring everybody up to date about that? So this was very, very early in the McCarthy era. He hadn't started the hearings or anything like that, but he was already shaking the tree and people were paying attention to him. And he was saying, you know, not only are there, you know, scientists who are spilling secrets, but there are people in the government who are, who are commies. The commies are all around you. Take a look. It's your neighbors are communists. And he was creating this sense of fear and paranoia. And, you know, the country was already, um, you know, they'd been through the war. They were exhausted. Um, you know, even the people at home had to you know, give up a lot. There were a lot of sacrifices. And now there was this fear that the communists would bomb us. You know, this was really terrifying. And um, he stirred the pot. He really did. He was, uh, he was pretty evil, to tell you the truth. 
He died a broken man. Yes, he did, appropriately, I believe. Yeah. At one point, Rosalind realizes uh, that somebody's bugged her apartment. And um, Charlie brings over a tool that can find bugs. Was there really such a tool back then? Why? Also, I want to point out that it was really funny that the part that bothered her was one of the bugs was above is was in her bathroom and it just she was mortified well i think some of the bugs is was actually in um in weaver's bathroom but there was one over her bed which was not 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 a great thing um (laughs) but you know just imagine what it would have been like in those days to have been bugged first of all the bugs were extremely expensive so they really wanted to know what Weaver was up to or they wouldn't have bugged her apartment. And, um, and they were, as you might remember in the description, they were the size of cigarette packs and had to be wired into electricity somewhere. They didn't have batteries that were strong enough to keep going. They didn't, you know, that was later. So, um, Yes, they did have a way to find bugs just as the, you know, the machine that he brought. All of that, I did a lot of research to find out about what kind of equipment was used in that era, what they called them, all of that. Mm -hmm. Charlie's an interesting character, aside from being six foot seven. He's, uh, he has PTSD after being held as a prisoner of war for three years. Can you describe what happened to him? Explain a little what was going on with the attitudes of the Japanese regarding honor. Maybe more about what happened to Charlie and others like him. So uh, Charlie was in the Philippines uh, very early, uh, early enough in the war that, you know, most people don't know this, but when Pearl Harbor was bombed, they also bombed the Philippines and completely wiped out whatever air power they had. And then the Japanese came in and everybody, all every American had to surrender. It was an awful situation. Um, and there were terrible, terrible camps in the Philippines uh, where most people died. Another issue was, you know, Charlie was on Corregidor, so he, uh, he didn't have to go through this, but a lot of men had to go through the Bataan Death March. I don't know if you know about that. Mm-hmm. It's mentioned in the book, but, you know, the Bataan Death March, people went for like, I think it was 11 days with no food or water, trying to get to this Camp O'Donnell, which was the prisoner of war camp, and most of the people died. It was just horrifying. So um, he, he avoided that, but he was, you know, in this terrible camp, and then he was shifted to Japan, uh, up into the mountains where it was cold, where they didn't have any heat, where their clothing was insufficient. And, you know, the whole idea behind the way the Japanese treated their prisoners was that the, the concept of surrender is worse than death. If you surrender, you are a worm. You are nothing in this world. So the fact that the Americans surrendered, they just treated them vilely. And it's important to note that the Japanese never signed the Geneva Convention. They could treat their prisoners any way they chose, and they did. So, you know, when the Red Cross sent supplies uh, to the prisoners in Japan, it never got to them. 
you know, it was shipped off and used for Japanese citizens. And, um, you know, people really suffered horribly, as Charlie did. A lot of the men had Barry Barry. Um, it was, uh, you know, they died of the cold. They, they died of exposure. They were, uh, create, they were asked to build um, a dam in Nagoya. And so that's what Charlie was working on. And he didn't even have a decent pair of shoes because being so tall, among, uh, you know, in a place where most of the citizens were much, much shorter, nothing fit him that they gave him. The clothing, the shoes did not fit him. And so that part of the story is what happened with him and his shoes. And I don't want to give it away, but um, it's one of my favorite parts of the story stories. And I found out a lot about the prisoner of war camps by doing uh, research that brought me to oral histories of the prisoners who lived in those camps and what it was like for them. And it was just eye-opening to hear them speak. I wonder how those prisoners afterwards felt about all the films and writing about Nazi, about Nazi Germany. We didn't in this, in this country, we didn't get as much about what was going on. You know, with the Japanese. that's a good point, actually. And nobody has really asked me about that. I think you're right that, you know, we were so horrified with what was happening in Nazi Germany. Um, you know, many of us were either Jewish or we had friends who were Jewish or we could not imagine an entire group of people being murdered. Um, so we were really focused on that. But the Japanese were incredibly cruel to the Americans. And, um, you know, you just don't hear much about it. However, I will tell you, I, I know a number of people who said that their relatives were either in a camp or they had been in the war in Japan and they would not speak about it. It was so painful. Mm -hmm. So Rosalind's family is very small. She was raised by her sister and brother-in-law and she has a young niece, as you said. How was she able to keep her lab work secret from them? Well, you know, my mother's cousin worked at the metallurgical laboratory, as they called the place where they secretly had the Manhattan Project in Chicago. And uh, my mother was her best friend. They walked to the University of Chicago every single day. And my mother's cousin would not tell her one single thing about what she was doing. I don't believe she was a scientist. I believe she was a clerical worker. Uh, but I will never know because she took it to her grave. She absolutely would not speak about it. It was just so ingrained in them that this was secret to death and that they had sworn an oath. So, you know, I think it would be probably not impossible at all for Rosalind to say, I can't speak about what I'm doing. This is a war effort. That's probably all you'd have to say in those days. Mm -hmm. Do you think anybody could keep that up today? I don't know. I <laughs> We are such sharers today, aren't we? <laughs> We're constantly posting every single, you know, piece about our lives, every detail. It's hard to imagine. What was your uh, favorite part of writing this book? You know, there's a scene uh, in the book that I really, really loved writing. And it was the scene where Charlie walks home a man who's drunk from a bar and he's the husband of her 
of Charlie's childhood love, um, who really broke his heart. And he goes to bring this drunk man home and it's two in the morning. And there she is, the girl that broke his heart in her nightgown, pregnant. And she tells him he must come in and speak to her. And she talks to him about what really happened when they broke up. And um, I just love that scene. I don't know why. It just felt so important for Charlie to be able to resolve something that had, you know, bedeviled him for so long. And he, he literally could not have moved forward if he hadn't had that moment with Linda, this woman. And so I just really loved writing about that. I loved that scene too. That was really, it was satisfying. So um, I think your writing is beautiful. The story was gripping. I had a wonderful, I sat in one session. I don't know if I got up from my chair to read it. (laughs) What are you working? What are you working on now? Okay. So I'm working on something that, you know, when I start writing a book, I have really very little idea where it's going. I'm just drawn to certain things. And One thing I'm interested in finding out more about is uh, what happened in the South during the lunch counter sit-ins. I live now in Nashville, Tennessee. I've lived here for 11 years. And, you know, I'm I'm, I'm quite fascinated. John Lewis was among the students at the lunch counter sit-ins here in uh, Nashville. And it was, you know, the civil rights moment. It was a moment where they said no more. And I think it's very relevant to where we are now in time. And uh, it's something I want to write about um, from a young girl's point of view, that portion of the book. And then there are other parts I'm, I'm putting together. So as soon as the whirlwind of this book launch you know, is over, I'm going to really focus on that. Oh, it sounds interesting. I hope you'll get in touch with me for that. Thank you so much for talking to me today, Jenny. It's been a pleasure. Well, nice talking to you, Galit. It was really fun. And thank you for joining me. Again, this is G.P. Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series and host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I've been talking with Jenny Fields, author of Atomic Love. If you enjoyed today's podcast and would like to discuss it further with me and other New Books Network listeners, please join us on Shuffle. Shuffle's an ad-free, invite-only network focused on the creativity community. As New Book Network listeners, you can get special access to conversations with a dynamic community of writers and literary enthusiasts. Sign up by going to www.shuffle.do forward slash nbn forward slash join.